Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. At Sierra University, we've been empowering students to pursue their goals for over 130 years. From innovative degree programs and helpful tools to campus locations focused on creating community for international students, we can help you find your way forward. We even offer international students 25% off tuition on select degree programs. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Welcome back, everybody, to the Across the Sky podcast, our Lee Enterprises National Weather Podcast. Uh, we are in April. You know what they say, April showers bring May flowers, and we're going to talk about flooding in this episode. That's why we get too many April showers. Uh, but before we get started on our interview, we're going to toss it around the horn here. We have Sean Sublett at the Richmond Times-Dispatch, Matt Hollander in the Midwest. Kirsten, we're going to see she might be able to join us halfway through this podcast. Um, if not, it's just going to be three of us here and our guests. Guys, it is April. Matt, you're just as busy as other as ever weather-wise here. Let's forget about the weather, though. How's everything going in Matt Hollander's life? <laughs> yeah, I could go on and on about how uh, I, I just do not catch a break with these storms. I mean, we've gone from a winter to severe weather season and actually a little bit of both as of this recording on March 30th. It looks like some heavy snow in northern Wisconsin, but severe storms in southern Wisconsin, they might might end up with a with a little bit of snow in southern Wisconsin. So, yeah, the uh, the active weather continues. But uh, overall, uh, I'm doing good. It just seems like, man, my little spring break trip seems like a distant memory now because it's been right back to it. Not <laughs> nonstop things to talk about in the Midwest from a weather perspective. Gotcha, Sean. What's happened, my man? I don't get to talk to you all the time now that we don't do snow search on Mondays anymore. I know, but we're going to be doing some other things this summer. So as they say, stay tuned. But, uh, right. you know, otherwise things are, are reasonably quiet here. The big story here in Richmond, uh, we've got race weekend. Uh, NASCAR's tour is coming through Richmond this weekend. Very excited for that. For uh, Sunday, it's going to be gorgeous here. I mean, around 60, 65 uh, with sunshine for the race here. Um, but before that, it's going to get really warm and windy. A little freaked out about how windy it's going to be uh, this coming Saturday. Uh, so we'll see how that all plays out. But uh, otherwise, you know, we, we're talking about flooding and droughts and droughts and flooding and, and how, you know, California has suddenly just, you know, their drought is almost, almost gone. But it's starting to get a little dry here in Virginia just in the last two or three weeks. So that's something we're going to have to watch very closely. Getting into April, the sun angle gets higher in the sky. It gets warmer. Ground dries out faster. So that's kind of one of those things in the back of my mind as we get into April. Yeah, you know, you bring up drought. And uh, I was actually just looking at this earlier today. So this is like the March 28th update from the United States Drought Monitor. In the West, uh, a year ago today, 88% 88% of the West was in some stage of drought. And after, I think it's a dozen of these atmospheric river events in 400 inches of snow in Lake Tahoe, uh, we're now down to 35% with drought. So a huge chunk. 
taken out over the past year. Still got a ways to go. The West is always fickle with this, but really a tremendous dent in that drought. And yeah, so I know you guys in Virginia, you, you guys are kind of teetering on drought. We're doing the same here in South Jersey. You know, as we uh, as we like to say here, it could rain overnight and you could have a fire in the Pinelands uh, that day <laughs> because we have that strong sun. We got this what we call sugar soil in the Pine Barrens here where it's really just sandy soil. And, you know, think about the beach, you dump water, it drains right through kind of the same concept. So we're in peak wildfire season as we go into April and May. Rain is a good thing. I think Luke Bryan sang about that once. Uh, our rain was a good thing. So um, we're hoping for rain, but what we don't want is too much rain. And that's where our guest comes in for today here. We're going to talk about flooding forecasts, flooding in real time, block by block, because sometimes we do need it. And especially um, just a little side professional story here at the Jersey Shore. We do have a number of resources available for people when it comes to coastal flooding. That's what the tides. We're going to talk a little bit more about rainfall flooding here, um, you know, mudslides and all of that. And here with me um, is Valeri Ivanov. He is professor, professor, excuse me, of hydro systems engineering at the University of Michigan here. Um, he wrote all about um, this machine learning method that kind of can make this all possible. So uh, we are going to welcome him onto the podcast. Good talking with you here today. Hello, everybody. And thank you for having me your your podcast awesome yeah pleasure to have you on here um, especially as we get into the spring so you know it was interesting uh you wrote that back in january of 2023 you were checking these forecasts on your on your weather apps on your cell phone um during these weeks of intense storms and we're wondering if these same people who are in the downpours were using this technology to decide whether or not they need to leave and evacuate in california um so just kind of give us a little more detail, walk through us, you know, what you were thinking, what you were feeling during that time, and how it comes into some of the research that that you are doing now. Well, it follows sort of the research that we've been doing for, well, many years now. I think about seven uh, or maybe seven, eight years ago, we started asking this question. What would it take to produce flood forecasts at the scale or at, at the resolutions that would be most useful to people? I think at that time, we looked at, uh, specifically, we looked at the Nashville 2010 flood. I don't know if you remember that, but some people called it a thousand-year flood. There were multiple fatalities and about 26, 27 people died. And at that time, when we started looking at the causes or the reasons for why people died, I mean, it was pretty much the ignorance or the lack of knowledge of where the flood was happening. So every time when I, I would open a talk on the topic of flooding at that time, I would show a picture from National Geographic, two teenagers holding to a stop sign. And the stop sign is really like at the, at the level of where they're, uh, they're holding to, the, uh, uh, to not be uh, washed down by the river. And the story goes like this. They they went to church. They did not know what was happening. They took the wrong turn and they ended up in the river almost, you know, uh, almost dying in, in this incident. And so that kind of like triggered the thought, well, we don't have this forecast. We don't know where the floods are. Why? And what it would take to actually produce them. And we started looking at that problem. We started piecing things together, which is models, data, forecasts, uh, computational resources. And we quickly realized, well, yes, we can simulate 
plots at a very high resolution, at a very high level of detail, but they're not computationally feasible. And by not computationally feasible, I mean, if you have a flood that say lasts a day, it will take about three days to maybe simulate that flood, right? So if you're talking about decisions that need to be made within an hour, within the next few hours, you're way late. You're way too late to produce that forecast. And so that is how we kind of started thinking, well, there should be some alternative solution to the problem. And this is where we started looking into probabilistic methods developed by the Department of Energy, actually looking also at the very uh, computationally intensive problems that they don't need real time, but they, they really had to get the computational intensity. This reminds me of the very early days of numerical weather prediction where the computers were not strong enough and you could do a forecast mathematically, but it would take you five or six days to do all the calculations for a forecast that was 12 hours from now. So are there any, any ways you can make some shortcuts or do some parameterizations um, to, to give you a head start on this problem, like knowing where some of the, you know, just understanding the general topography of an area where there is low lying creeks, or is, is that a way to kind of get a, a, a jump start on this process? Yes, and that's exactly how you, you're describing this, Sean. This is exactly how people started thinking about this problem. Can we take simpler models? Can we, instead of uh, producing a flood forecast in terms of inundation, velocity, pressure, can we produce a flood forecast in terms of flow rate at a nearby stream gauge? And that's how the National Weather Service is operating. This is how the Office of Hydrology is producing flood forecasts for like 2 million reaches nowadays. It's flow rate. It's not water level. It's not uh, flow velocity. And actually, to us, I think these are the things that matter. If I walk outside of my house and I am in a car, I don't need to know the flow rate in the river because that's a far-fetched extrapolation, if you will, right? Yes, you can use topography, but then topography is to sort of like extrapolate away from the river and to know where water would be. But as you understand, of course, that brings uncertainties. And flood forecasting is already uncertainty-laden problem. We look at uh, precipitation forecasts, highly uncertain, uh, some time ago, we looked at well, even the data that go into a flood model being highly uncertain. Nowadays, it's kind of getting better. You know, it's it's a data now rich environment. But how? Why would you want to add an additional uncertainty of extrapolation if your problem is already uncertain? And so that's why we kind of went with what we call high fidelity model solution, which were uh, which are numerical hydrodynamic models that were developed back in the 70s and 80s. Is just to realize that they are not real time ready. And you have to create a bridge from these complex solutions that give you everything that you need, flow velocities, inundation levels, pressures, you name it. But how do you create a bridge to something that's much, much faster? This is where the machine learning came in. And I'm curious, how detailed can you get using these simpler models? And then how much more quickly can you run it? So hopefully we can get as much detail as possible. Then how much more quickly using this new solution is it compared to the way things are now. We published a paper a year ago in Geophysical Research Letters, and that's how kind of where this conversation piece uh, came from, that shows that if you do everything carefully and you, you can try to map the solution of the high fidelity model to the machine learning informed solution, you can cut seven orders of magnitude from computational time, seven. 
So when I, when I was saying you would need to take three days to simulate a one-day flood, now you can do it in a fraction of a second. And you don't need to, to have a computational center. You don't need to have HP high-performance computing cluster available at your capacity, which, by the way, who would have that during the flood? So the idea was, can we take that difficult problem and map it into something that's actually available to a typical flood forecaster, which is a desktop, and it's not going to be a HPC desktop, so that the forecast can be carried out in a matter of you know minutes. And in our case, again, we are showing it's possible to do it within seconds. So if you do this in minutes, in seconds, like where do you see this information going? Like if I'm living in this flood area, how will this get to me? And what do you think, or how would you want it to look like? Because you need, yeah, you got, we have all this was great, right? But we needed to get to the end user who is a person who lives in their house in California where there could be a mudslide or some kind of significant flood that day. The, the big picture behind this is you take your cell phone, you take your gadget, uh, you open an app and you type in your neighborhood and you get a flood forecast. Uh, when you started looking at that problem, I, and again, it was about seven or eight years ago. I don't know if you know this, but I definitely did. At that time is when we started looking uh, at weather forecast. You started getting precipitation with uncertainty. It's it's still not exactly my neighborhood, but it, it gives more information now, right? And that's kind of like what we wanted to get. So I type in my address and it shows me how the flood is going to look like in the vicinity of my neighborhood. And it would give uncertainty. Uncertainty was a big also a part of the problem that we are trying to solve. And the framework that we proposed and we show that it works brings not only this high resolution, real-time prediction of the flood information, but it also gives uncertainty associated with that. So the big picture, again, going back, is at some point you will have a map on your phone that will tell you this is where the flooding is, this is where there is a big uncertainty, and then you make the decision based on that uncertainty, based on, based on that flood map on what you do. Awesome. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be right back with the Across the Sky podcast. Welcome back, everybody. We are here with the Across the Sky podcast. You know, new episodes come out every Monday. You can get that wherever you get your podcast or at your favorite news site here might be the press of atlanticcity.com might be uh richmond.com or in matt matt's got like 30 of them we could be here all day chatting <laughs> about all the websites that he covers um we're here with professor Ivanov. he is uh with the university of michigan we are talking more about flooding here real-time forecast you know Professor, you said that, uh, you know, ideally what we would have is someone opens up an app on their phone and they see the level of risk for their block, really, and how much it's going to flood here. Now, we talked a lot about rainfall flooding. I do want to talk about coastal flooding because we do actually have a lot of this already on the coastal flooding level. Um, you know, if a tide gauge is this many feet high, uh, means that these blocks are going to see water here. So I'm curious, tell me what the difference is between you know, doing this with coastal flooding and then, you know, we'll say precipitation flooding. And then talk to us also about, hey, you know, I'm here in South Carolina, a hurricane's coming. We usually get coastal flooding, but now we got all this rain. How can what you're doing help those situations? Yes. Uh, and I would say that the problem of flooding or sort of the conceptual differentiation between different types of flooding, it's 
perhaps more of a philosophical type rather than the actual one. Because if you look at coastal flooding and storm surge, it's the same type of equation that describes flooding. So yes, the the sort of the initiating agent is different. So it's a massive body of water that sits near the coast. But as the flood propagates inland, it is the same type of equation that sort of serves to predict the flooding. So uh, my background in, is sort of physical hydrology and hydraulics. So I typically work on land. Can the same type of machinery or can the same type of uh, mathematical approach be applied to a coastal search problem? Yes, absolutely. And we are already looking into sort of in, into that direction. Sometimes when you talk about coastal areas, I mean, the, the floods that happen are not caused actually by a single type of mechanism. If, if you have coastal surge, yes, people talk about coastal surge, but typically these are these types of floods also is, are associated with the massive amount of rainfall that occurs over the land. And that brings the land portion or what we call fluvial flood or fluvial flood or groundwater flood. Is it possible to address the problem in the same fashion as we've done it for an urban environment in Houston, where we looked at the land or like the fluvial and fluvial type of land. Yes, absolutely. Going back with, uh, I think you were talking to us a little bit about, you know, a, um, you know, a hurricane coming through, right. That's coming through, whether in the South or in the East, um, you know, and you got that and you talked a little bit about probabilistic learning. You said uh, in your, in your piece, you said it's a type of machine learning. All right. So explain to us what, probabilistic yeah. learning is to the lay person because i'm not even familiar i'm not familiar with it really too much either and uh how does that differ or how is that a part of machine learning that we're hearing about you know all the time typically hydrologists and river uh, or hydrologic forecasters they used to deal with what we call numerical models that describe a set of processes that lead to flooding and these are uh, well, first principles-based uh, mathematical models, which is conservation of mass, conservation of momentum. Uh, they are, of course, used in numerical weather prediction. And these are the ones that we call physics-based, comprehensive, high-fidelity type of models. But these are the ones that create a, high, a, a challenge of computational effort, right? So these are the ones that are very difficult to compute. However, uh, with the advance of, well, computations, uh, people started looking at, uh, well, what's called machine learning-based approaches, and these are not based on the same principles. They are, in fact, uh, fairly simple functions, and these functions have coefficients that can be trained. And sort of the technical jargon is you can take a solution of a very complex model, a high-fidelity model, you can produce many, many outputs from that high-fidelity model. And then you can take a simple model, a machine learning model, to mimic that solution given the same type of forcing, if it makes sense. Uh, if, you, if you took calculus, which you, of course you did, uh, what, we, what we are taking is we are taking a hydrodynamic model and we are representing its solution with a set of polynomials. And what happens with these polynomials, you need to match coefficients. You need to match coefficients, and these coefficients will produce this nonlinear behavior of a very complex model, and this is done through the phase of training. So what we emphasized in the, in, the, in the research paper that we published is that there is, of course, a training period, and it should not be sort of neglected. Before you get to the real-time flood forecasting, you need to train the simpler models, but this does not have the pressure of time. 
you can do it when you have a drought, when there is no flood. And essentially what it boils down to is you take your hydrodynamic high fidelity model, you run it multiple times, multiple number of times, like for example, in the paper, we ran it 10,000 times. And then you look at the output and you train your machine learning approach to mimic the solution. For example, inundation at location X, Y at time T naught. You can train another model to reproduce uh, model behavior at yet another location. You can take any output from the high fidelity model and train your solutions for that. Do you want this to be inundation level? You can do it. You, you want to have a discharge flow rate? You can do that. Uh, you can do some statistics based on that. And again, the, the trick is you go away from differential equations that take a lot of computational time. You go to something that's trivial, mathematically trivial. That's why when you have a trained machine learning model, it takes really a fraction of a second to compute the solution because it really is one line statement in your code. Does it make sense? Yeah, it's pretty complex stuff, but uh, fascinating at the same time. And what I want to do is kind of go back to the the inspiration of all this, because what stood out to me, I was reading your article, and you mentioned that you had a near drowning experience while crossing a river once. So could you tell us a little bit about that story? What exactly happened and how did that inspire you uh, to do this work? I was much younger. I was about maybe 25, 26, and I was in a backcountry trip uh, with my buddy. And it was in the middle of what you call the middle of nowhere. Uh, it was actually in Siberia and we hiked out. It was about maybe 30 miles from the nearest settlement. And then we, we came across a river. And the river was actually in a state of flooding at that point. Uh, maybe before I actually tell you this story, I can tell you that when we were coming back on a truck, people told us that this river, at about the same time when we tried to cross that river, it up, upsided a huge truck that was about like 15, ton, uh, 15 tons of weight. So us, me, hydrologists, who should have actually appreciated what a flowing force, I mean, what the force would be from the you know, flooded river, we decided to cross it. I mean, it was like either you go back where you started or you actually get to your final destination. So we decided to cross the river. And as I started wading into the river, at some point I was well taken by the current. It, uh, I was also flipped with my backpack. I had to struggle to, uh, to get to the other side. And I remember just shivering, being on the other side. And then my friend who remained on the other side of the river, he tried to cross it, even though I started shouting don't don't like you walk on that side i'm gonna walk on that side he started shouting he started drowning i dropped my backpack i ran into water and tried to pull him out i mean everything ended well obviously but it created this understanding of how ignorance about what this force really is how 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 impactful that might be and I mean, frankly, again, if you've never were in a in a current of high velocity and of high depth, you may not really appreciate. And that really, I think, explains that about two thirds of fatalities associated with floods in this country they are classified as walking in water or driving in water. It happens every year. Again, it's two thirds of fatalities. Well, you know what they say? They always say, "Turn around, don't drown." That's always the big campaign, you know, with uh, any kind of flooding. I'm curious though, like how wide was this river? Like how deep and how wide are we talking with this river? 
And why Siberia? Are, are you from Siberia? Is that, is that part of Russia you're from? Uh, yes. Uh, actually, it was uh, about, you see my background right now, which yes. was a large forest that's in the polar Urals. And the, the place where I almost drowned was about 400 kilometers south of that place. Okay. Uh, and yeah, it was just, you know, we used to do a lot of backcountry trips back then. Uh, I was a student, very interested in nature and learning nature. Um, and and yeah, the, the river was maybe not that wide. I remember it was maybe around 200, 200 feet wide. In terms of depth, I'm wide. about, yeah, I'm about <laughs> six feet tall. Uh, but when it took me, I stopped feeling the bottom uh, of the channel. So mm. for for a fraction of it, it, I just I was just taken by the river. I could not feel it, and then I started getting hit by rocks. Uh, and and yeah, that really is amazing. And and to your point, Val, I don't I agree that un, until you've experienced it and and have a firsthand experience of, of being in current that rapid and to that depth, that it, it's really hard to understand how much power that moving water truly has on, on whether it's you or or on a vehicle you know and with that regarding regarding safety and we we talk about downscaling the model so they end up just being one line of code so you can get them run pretty quickly what do you think that's going to do in terms of lead time for a flood i mean are we are we gonna are you hoping this goes to a lo, a, a place where you have a flood forecast based on rainfall that's expected in the next 20 to 24 hours or rainfall that is expected in a much shorter time frame. Ideally, how far in advance do you think you could give people some kind of a of, of a risk assessment of what the flood potential would be? Yes, great question. And of course, that's actually the key. I mean, it's the, the rainfall or precipitation forecast is key to any flood forecast effort. And I think what stimulated our effort is that uh, some time ago, uh, NOAA started uh, producing uh, precipitation forecasts with something that's called uh, high-resolution rapid uh, predictions, prediction system, which produces uh, precipitation forecasts 24 hours ahead uh, at about three kilometer resolution, one hour temporal resolution, which, okay, well, yeah, it's not going to be super accurate, but it's going to improve over time. And by the time when it becomes very good, at that time, you should be ready. And so I think right now, realistically, in this country, we can do 24-hour lead time forecast that you can also update, right? As you get near uh, the storm and as the storm start happening, your forecast for the next few hours is becoming more accurate. And you can update your solution. And it's not going to take any effort, as I explained. And how close do you think we are to making this operational? Like you, you described somebody pulling up on their phone and looking at a map to see which roads are going to flood. Like how far away are we, do you think, from that being being a reality that you could pull up an app and see which roads are going to flood? How close do you think we are to having that happen? Another great question. Well, I came to this country 25 years ago and I was hired on a project funded by NASA and the title was something like high spatial resolution flood forecast or something like that. Are we still, I mean, are we there 25 years later? No. Why is it not happening? I cannot judge. But I think we have all the ingredients that are available to us that can make it happen at least 
it can start happening in some very specific environments, such as cities, right? I mean, you, 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 take, you take New York, you take Boston, you take San Francisco, you take Houston. I mean, cities that have sort of a higher risk associated with floods or they, that have a history of floods. And you can start implementing it there. Um, can we do it as a research group? Yes, we can do it. I mean, we used to joke that it would take about $5 million to do it. But of course, I understand it's, it's a little more than that at the national scale. But again, I think that all the ingredients are actually available nowadays to start, uh, man, to start making this happen. The idea that somebody could pull up an app on their phone and see which roads are going to flood, I think that would do so much. Instead of people venturing out, you know, we talk about there could be flooded roads out there, but we can never pinpoint exactly where. Sometimes we know there's certain roads that do flood more often than others, low-lying, poorly drained locations. But to be able to give people more confidence and be specific that even before somebody has to encounter one of those flooded roads to report it, knowing that it's already flooded would be so helpful and so useful. I know just from a, a broadcast perspective, we could come up with a list of roads like these roads are flooded and we get that information out to people as quickly as possible. I think it would be less likely that anybody is going to you know, ever risk before any barricades can be put up. We can avoid the risk of anybody accidentally driving into one of those flooded roads. So I, I look forward to the day when, when that app is, <laughs> is available on the phone because, boy, I think that could do a lot to save some lives. Yes, I think providing information to people is really crucial. And providing information with uncertainty is, is even more so crucial because people can make decisions. I honestly believe people can make rational decisions. Well, with that, uh, I believe we're going to wrap it up here. Great conversation about flooding. Um, and we're looking forward to, again, putting that in the power of people's hands, you know, with a flooding forecast like that on an app or whatever it may be. And even for us as meteorologists who are communicating that info, to the public, that's all good as well. Anything else uh, before we wrap on up here for today, Professor? Well, thank you very much for this fun conversation. And yeah, I'm just like you. I'm looking forward to this happening uh, at some at some point. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, we are going to wrap it up on the other side of this break. Thanks for listening to the Across the Sky podcast. So that was Professor Ivanov. Happy to have him on. And um, we're happy that one day in the palm of your hand or website, if it's raining, significant rain, severe rain, you'll be able to see if your block is flooding. And listen, I get it. I know a lot of us, we might be living, you know, in suburbia or a city where, you know, you might not flood all that often. But there are some of you who are probably listening where flooding is an issue that you have to deal with several times a year. And this is where it's really going to be handy. Yeah, it's one of those things where you, sometimes you don't know you're in a flood prone area until it actually floods. I mean, I, I mean, I didn't know as a kid, you know, I'm not paying attention to that stuff. It's only within the past 10, 11 years. I'm outside. I'm looking at an environment, whether it's urban, suburban rural and i start looking for divots where water can collect i mean i kind of see beyond the buildings now i'm like oh water could collect there water could collect there you know i don't think i want to build a house over there because it's toward the bottom of a hill i don't think i really want to do that um so yeah but you know if it doesn't if it doesn't get to where you are you have no idea that it might get there well, I'm glad we're making progress on this because, I mean, this is a, a huge challenge because there are just so many elements that are involved in this. As he mentioned, you know, you got to start with the precipitation forecast. Yeah. And that is 
as with all of meteorology and all of our forecasts, has gotten better. But to be able to pinpoint where the heaviest rain is going to occur, we can now have gotten very good about highlighting areas that are likely to flood. And we can say flooding is likely in this area, but where exactly in that area is the flooding going to occur? That's the challenge. Where is the those highest rainfall amounts? Where exactly are those occur? We've got to get better at that. But then also it's uh, figuring out just on the micro scale, you know, it, it becomes thing, issues like is a storm drain clogged or not? Because <laughs> that, that really becomes an, an issue, you know, after the fall and all the yeah. leaves is an individual storm drain clogged. Because if one drain is clogged, suddenly a road that normally wouldn't flood can if the heaviest rain happens to fall there and they have a clogged storm drain so there's so many you know moving elements to this and it takes a lot of computational power so developing a method like this where the computers aren't having to work as hard and they can be run faster processing all this data that's progress we're, we're moving in the right direction and being able to say which roads specifically are going to flood uh man yeah that would be that would be a huge that would be as they say a game changer so yeah but even by day. his own even by his own admission he he knows that it's still probabilistic forecasting in other words it's still not one or a zero it's not like this is going to flood at this time to this level it's still probably going to be kind of like this bell curve or like you know this road has a 70 percent chance of flooding tomorrow this one has a 20 percent chance of, of flooding tomorrow that's probably where it's going to be uh at least initially and for a while uh be, because of just so many uncertainties like you said, uh, Matt, to to try to quantify every single solitary thing is going to be uh, difficult at best. So I think the best we can hope for, at least for a while, is 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 probability forecasting, like a lot of precipitation forecasting is for that matter. You know, when it comes to flooding too, I mean, like you said, Matt, it could be just a storm drain as simple as that, that changes things. You know, I remember um, a young Joe, maybe not 25 years old, like real young Joe, I used to sometimes put leaves into the drain at my house because I thought maybe I'd get a, a school, you know, a day off from school if I thought it would rain hard enough. I was so uh, close-minded to the world back then. But um, but we do hope that this has come into the palm of all your hands and, you know, ours as well as we talk. And, you know, it's all about better communication uh, with weather. Uh, and we'll keep saying it until no lives are lost in any kind of significant weather event. All right. So, Sean, we're going to pitch it over to you for a second because we have a uh, serious topic coming up as we go yeah. into our next Across the Sky podcast, which everyone will be able to check out next Monday. Yeah. So, as I'm sure most people know about the devastating storms, uh, the tornadoes in Mississippi uh, about a week or so ago, uh, a colleague of mine works on the air as a meteorologist in Tupelo, Mississippi, WTVA, uh, Matt Laubin. And we're going to have him on next week to talk about the process, talk about not just being there in the moment, about trying to walk people through a devastating of, uh, of environment in real time, but then how do you deal with it afterwards? There's the initial loss of life, right? And then, and then assessing what has just happened in, in the coming 24 hours. But so oftentimes, unfortunately, these things kind of get forgotten about at the national level or through the national conversation after a week or so. So we're going to talk about all those things, mental health, what 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 all is involved in that uh, next week. That's Matt Lobin from uh, from uh, Tupelo, Mississippi on our, on our podcast. Very, very much looking forward to, to having Matt on. You know, we're going to try to, just as a philosophy with our podcast, we have something significant happening weather-wise. We 
try to uh, talk about it as quickly as we could. So, um, you know, we'll have him on and um, you know, we'll go from there. So we will sign off for this edition of the Across the Sky podcast. Make sure you can subscribe. We have this literally wherever you can find your podcast. So go there, so hit the subscribe button. We'll have new episodes every Monday. Hope everyone has a great week and we'll talk to you soon. At Strayer University, we see you striving to work harder and go further. That's why we provide you with the tools you need to get there, like offering a brand new laptop when you enroll in a bachelor's program. So you can do your coursework anytime, anywhere, and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.